Hey everyone, Jody Avergan here. If you're listening from Los Angeles, we have an event coming up on Thursday, August 2nd in Hollywood. You can find information at 30for30podcast.com slash events. We'd love to see you. From ESPN Films and ESPN Audio, you're listening to 30 for 30 Plus. My name is Jody Avergan. This is our series of bonus podcasts in between seasons of documentaries where we have conversations with filmmakers about recent 30 for 30 films. There's a new season of original stories coming from us this fall, but for now, a conversation about how athletes push the limits of the human body. What has been the story of sports over the last you know, 20 or 30 years? It's been, hey, we're machines. We're machines. We have systems that can be optimized, and that can be optimized a number of ways. Enhanced is a six-part film series that explores the secret world of modern sports training, technology, and recovery. It's a behind-the-scenes look at the laboratories and breakthrough innovations that are driving peak athletic performance. But the pursuit of greatness comes with a host of ethical conundrums. Behind the scenes of every broken record is a high-stakes arms race where greatness can be purchased for a price. Eating spaghetti is an okay optimization. We've decided that steroids, HGH, and all these other things are not. When you nap, your body produces a lot of HGH. So should naps be illegal? Alex Gibney and Dan Coyle, who we just heard, are two of the people behind the new series. Gibney, who narrates the series, won an Academy Award for his work on Taxi to the Dark Side. Some of his other films tackle the fall of Enron, Governor Elliot Spitzer, and the Church of Scientology. So he has a lot of experience reporting on dubious ethical behavior. He also directed the popular ESPN film Catching Hell, which documented Chicago Cubs fans' anger towards Steve Bartman. Coyle is featured throughout the series, and his book, The Talent Code, was its creative inspiration. Alex Gibney and Dan Coyle, welcome to 30 for 30 Plus, and congratulations on the release of this series. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much, Jody. I guess I want to start with the pretty straightforward question, and then we'll get into some of the ideas, but how did the two of you guys uh, first link up and start to plan out this series? It's funny the way we, we Dan and I got to know each other. It was because of, I was working on a film about Lance Armstrong. Yeah. And Dan had done a great book called The Secret Race. It was all about the shadow world, that world behind the world that you see broadcast of the Peloton and everybody cycling. You know, what kind of drugs were they doing? What kind of training were they doing? And we had been thinking about all the moral issues yeah. surrounding, you know, the Lance Armstrong story. So we thought that it would really be interesting to do something that wasn't just about doping. And that's why we call the series Enhanced. It's like, how do you push yourself? How do you give yourself aids to get better? And what are the upsides and what are the downsides? So to look at that whole issue, both technically and holistically, and, and in a way ethically. And the problem that we quickly ran into, you know, a lot of times you do a project like this and you're kind of thinking, okay, what's going to fit in? In this, we had too much. Like there's just so many great stories. We, we meet the, the people who are doing the genetic research uh, on something called a myostatin inhibitor that can cause muscle to grow 50%. It's clear that it's not just muscle mass, but also increased speed. Which of course has massive, massive implications both for doping and for recovery. Um, we spent time with Mark Cuban, who's pioneering one of the first HGH studies, human growth hormone studies. There wasn't any research saying that it was bad for you. There is no research. If you can accelerate recovery with you know, something that's safe, why wouldn't you do it? 
we meet a guy named Wim Hof who, who has pioneered this tech, this crazy breathing technique that has incredible power to change your, your physical state. You learn to connect with your body. For sure, you can learn to control flow. You've got this whole landscape that, that, as Alex says, is just underneath the beautiful sports that we watch, that is also beautiful and weird and scary and surprising and inspiring. And it was uh, the biggest challenge that we faced in making this wasn't in locating stuff. It was in trying to weed out, uh, trying, to, trying to deal with such, a, such an incredible richness of, of story and of character. What was the most mind-blowing technology or idea you encountered in the course of making this? Well, peculiarly enough, it was the whole idea that you can't really trust your own mind. Hmm. And it turns out that sports have a lot more to do with the mind than we would think. And that how we sometimes think from the gut, you know, which is supposed to be a good thing, that actually our minds have evolved to make snap judgments, but also to... <laughs> <laughs> to convince us in a way that those snap judgments are right, even though they may be wrong. I, you just gave a very compelling answer that feels like you weren't talking about sports at all. Right. Well, let me relate it to sports quickly. I mean, one of the more interesting, there's a episode we do about data, and it's called Algorithm Wars. And one of the more intriguing characters in that is the general manager for the Houston Rockets, a guy named Daryl Morey. At age eight, I was in the middle of rural Ohio, and... You know, I was really excited about sports and math. Daryl Morey, super interesting guy, you know, has an MIT background. I think has really been the guy who's most brought the data mindset into the NBA. One of the things they discovered at the Houston Rockets was that they would have sort of prejudices, either for or against certain players that were based on the gut, but not on the data. Turns out humans are pretty bad at decisions. When they're looking at draft picks, they go, that guy, He's a little better here, he's a little worse there. So I'm gonna sort of rank him roughly here. And it would prevent them from drafting the right people. And one of them was, um, you know, uh, one of the Gasol brothers who they spotted in France, but at the time they spotted him, was overweight. Famously, Marc Gasol was a larger guy when he was young. You know, our scouts at the time were using really negative terms about his weight. And so he earned the nickname, or he didn't earn it, but, you know, he got the nickname Man Boobs. <laughs> so every time he came up in draft conversation or in, 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 in thinking about him as a member of the Houston Rockets, it's like, we can't get Man Boobs. Why would we get Man Boobs? I am confident that's the reason we had him ranked too low, uh, and most of the NBA. Turns out that we lost some weight and did some training, and he, he became an awesome player. So they missed it, but they missed it because they had been fooled by their own kind of jokey prejudices and biases. And, and so they went through a process of challenging their own snap judgments on all these things as a way of getting better and smarter about how to assess players that they would draft. Dan, you want to jump in on that? What was the, the most interesting thing you felt like you encountered? I want to build exactly on that because basically sports science is replacing our eyes. It's giving us new eyes, which are called algorithms, which get rid of the old ways we look at things and give us new ways of looking at things. What struck me was the value of those algorithms, you know, and it became really apparent in one of the stories that we tell in that same episode, the Algorithm Wars episode, the hacking controversy between the St. Louis Cardinals and the Houston Astros. The FBI and the U.S. Justice Department uncovered evidence that St. Louis Cardinals officials broke into a Houston Astros computer database. 
a Cardinals executive named Chris Correa, was able to use an old password to hack into uh, the Astros database. He was looking to see if the Astros had taken a secret sauce from the Cardinals and put it in their own recipe. And the judge said, so you're telling me that you broke into your neighbor's house to determine if they stole your stuff. And Chris Correa said, yes. This is the first known case of corporate espionage involving a professional sports team actually hacking in to another team's network. It was this real peek behind a rather blunt and numerical approach to viewing players. And the value of that can be measured in the prison term he got. Uh, I think he got 42 months in prison for that hacking. Um, Because... Uh, replacing those step judgments with a data-based system means that it's not having that one great scout out there who's got the old eye, who can see who can hit the curve and who can't. It's in the data. That's where the value lies. So what does that mean for us as fans? What does that mean for us as, as in, in the front office? What does that mean for athletes? And so that, that idea that, hey, oh, wait a minute, all the Astros value can be put on a thumb drive. That's kind of incredible. Out of curiosity, do you guys think it counts as hacking if you just go use a password that your former employer forgot to change? <laughs> it's I mean, like the simplest hack in the world. It's the simplest hack. It definitely counts as hacking. It's yeah. like, is it okay if you see a guy who's drunk in his car and his wallet is falling out? Is it okay to steal it? Fair enough. Um, you're bringing up what to me felt like one of the, the central ideas throughout this entire series, which was the distinction, if there is one, between a hack and a shortcut. And this notion that you can either sort of improve upon something you're already doing, or you can try and find a complete end around and kind of give yourself a new skill or an entirely new set of abilities. And it felt like, to me, most of what you described was really about accelerating or finding efficiencies towards something that maybe you were going to already be able to accomplish anyway, not kind of supermanning up and getting a whole new set of skills. Hmm. The interesting thing to sort of put that into some context is that we've always had a, a core belief until recently that kind of the, the body and brain you were born with was kind of mostly what you had, right? Yeah. I mean, but this idea that science has given us just in recent years about neuroplasticity, you really can change the way your mind works. You really can change the way, and the mind, of course, we talk about in athletics, we talk about muscle memory a lot. Muscles don't have any memory, actually. All of this, all the improvement that happens, happens in between your ears. It happens in the wires of your brain. Mm-hmm. And it's only been recently that we've said, okay, wait a minute, we can optimize practice. We can change the way we approach practice. And, and that can be this huge differentiator between being average and being great. And I want to pick up on that a little bit because something Dan said, not quite quite this way, but the, the idea that you can literally change your mind. One episode, we, we talk a little bit about um, the whole idea of mindfulness, yeah. that you get into the zone you know, that people talk about. From about 30, 35 years of watching brain patterns of elite athletes, we figured out that at the last second, right before they initiate motion, what we see in their brain is a very balanced, beautiful place, and that's what allows them to perform well. We profile this one uh, veteran who is trying to get back into golf. I know for a fact that if I can overcome PTSD and work through things, you can get control of the anxiety of everybody. They call it the yips. 
That's where he and some other people discovered shortcuts to mindfulness rather than sitting down zazen, you know, in, in a Buddhist monastery to stimulate the vagus nerve. It's one of the largest nerves in the body and it controls automatic functions like heart rate and breathing rate. So when you stimulate the vagus nerve, that completely mellows you out. We started working with devices and stuff to help calming. It blew my mind when I first tried it. It sends vibrations, so your ears are pulsating. So he only used the vagus nerve stimulator for a few minutes, but almost right away, just heart rate up here, just went right down. And your breathing starts coming down. You feel like your blood flows, it just feels just, you know, calm. So it's really interesting, and, and to some extent, if you really go down that path, you're really talking about changing the architecture of your mind. Right. But So let's stay on that as an example, because I think it's an example that contains something that the entire series explores, which is where do we sort of cross that line from trying to improve ourselves in a way that we're comfortable with and to something that feels like maybe cheating or finding a sort of unfair advantage. So on that mindfulness technique, I mean, athletes have always thought about mental toughness. Athletes have for a long time talked to sports psychologists and so forth. But now we have examples, as you said, of a guy who can put in headphones and rewire his brain sort of in real time. Uh, Does that cross some line for either of you in terms of hack or improvement? Well, I think it, in a way, what you get to is it depends on the rules of the game. Yeah. You know, you can say that, um, you know, when we look into this, you know, in this series, both the, both sides of, of steroid use, which can be valuable in terms of recovery, but obviously can, can cause certain health problems if overused in terms of building up your muscles too fast uh, and, and what the side effects might be. But then uh, there's another discussion, which is, what should be and what should not be allowable according to the rules. And then sometimes what should or shouldn't be legal. You know, Lance Armstrong would make the case that, look, everybody was doing it. So what's the issue? It wasn't cheating. Um, Well, it was cheating. According to the rules, it it definitely was cheating. Um, So you'd have to say that there are the rules. And so long as you sign up for them, um, you got to abide by them. After the break, Alex Gibney and Dan Coyle discuss why the best athletes in the world still feel the need to bend the rules. Lance Armstrong's name is coming out of cycling's record books. He was stripped. When it comes to the doping, would you do it again? You know, if you take me back to 1995, when it was completely and totally pervasive, probably do it again. What is cheating? I mean, is drug taking cheating? All those people that think that, I don't think have a a grasp of reality in sport. Let's talk about the athletes who do this a little bit, um, because it feels like Alex, you mentioned this, that there was this there's this really interesting through line, whether it's steroids or some of these other uh, more cutting edge hacks. You hear over and over and over again from athletes that the assumption that, well, everyone else is doing it, so that allows me, gives gives me a permission structure to do it. Uh, and obviously, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy there. Sure. Well, I mean, it's an old problem, 
And you hear that with bankers on Wall Street, yeah. too. Um, and, and as um, now disgraced Governor Elliot Spitzer once said, you know, as a prosecutor, that was never really a, a good rationalization to me. Like if you said, well, yeah, I murdered somebody, but look at all these other guys. They're murdering people. What's the big deal? You know, it's still a crime. Um, but I, I do think at the, at the same time, you know, in a competitive environment, uh, if there's a wink and a nod, I mean, let's look at that that period when baseball was trying to recover from the big strike and suddenly all these home run records were being broken. And talk about people looking like they were blown up. I mean, everyone looked like the Michelin man. Suddenly Barry Bonds, you know, Mark McGuire. But, you know, I suspect that Major League Baseball wasn't really particularly shocked about steroid use because suddenly everybody was flooding back to the ballparks. When does a league decide it's time to clean up its sport? Is it when fans are enjoying the show or when doping becomes impossible to ignore? Mitchell Report publicly identified almost 100 Major League Baseball players that were personally using anabolic steroids against the rules of, of Major League Baseball. Are we saying that nobody really noticed? You know, it was just happening? Um, you know, of course, there was a kind of a wink and a nod at that moment because it suited everybody's purpose to wink and nod rather than, you know, come down hard. But something you hear in reaction to whenever we find out, oh, this athlete was cheating, often with the doping, you know, A-Rod was already, could have been the best player, a, you know, once in a generation player. Why did he need to take that extra step? Well, because well, he's a competitor. I mean, you know, yeah. and, and the same reason that, that, that Bonds was uniquely motivated by McGuire's success. You know, competitors don't switch it off at some high level. They don't get to some higher plane and say, okay, I'm good. They are there because they will yeah. react to every micro situation with uh, an urge to, to, to react. You know, Lance Armstrong would be exhibit A, B, and C on this. Like, incredible competitor. And that didn't, that, that made him approach doping with the same kind of organization and discipline and business-like approach that, um, you know, maybe a Wall Street trader has. But you, to absolutely, it, it actually, the closer you get to the mountaintop, the more 1% matters. That's what all these guys are doing. That's why it's so alluring for an A-Rod or a Bonds to take it, because that's where they can, they can leverage it into something, into, into powerful performance, uh, which means dollars. That's right. That These competitors are the ones we want to watch because they have an insane hunger to yeah. win. They have a great talent. And at that level, micro um, differences really you know, have a huge impact. I, I do want to touch on something both of you have mentioned, which are rules. Uh, I think you've both made pretty compelling cases that it really comes down to what the rules are within a given sport. You have also made pretty compelling cases that there will always be a gray area. So I wonder how you square that. Uh, is it just going to forever be the case that we make rules and then technology pushes past them and we have to make new rules and we're always just sort of trying to chase it? Or is there any scenario in which we make rules that feel comprehensive and effective and start to solve this if you even think of it as a problem to solve no it's a problem to solve but i don't think it's a problem that's ever gets solved i think you always have to tinker because we're talking about athletes but let's also remember the governing bodies i mean there's another aspect of sports which gets introduced to this which is money and athletes are certainly making money there's a gray area too in terms of what kind of rules um the owners of the game are really willing to endorse because 
everybody wants to see outsized performances and there becomes pressure, market pressure. Are you going to watch football or are you going to watch baseball? Because it's human nature to want to do better always, I think you're always going to have to be playing with a mix. And then you introduce science, which, which now we're talking about r- manipulating genes in ways that um, nobody's really wrapped their heads around yet. Uh, so that, yeah, we're going to have to keep fine-tuning the rules. You're always going to have the cops and robbers game with dopers and, and people trying to catch them, right? You're going to invent a new way to cheat, and they'll try to invent a new way to stop you. But the way cycling has recently tried to change that is by changing the way that they do the testing. They've changed, rather than try to test for specific substances, they're doing this thing called a biological passport, which means I'm going to take all Jody's numbers, I'm going to look at where he is normally on all these different sort of baseline values of of hormones and red blood cells and everything else. And then if that ever gets out of line, you can't compete. I'm not going to accuse you of anything, but I'm just going to keep you out of competition for that because your passport is out of whack. So that concept is really kind of intriguing because it changes the model. The model goes from being kind of cops and robbers to... um, to, to one that we're really trying to measure what makes you good and, and try to measure your capacity as an athlete. I, I'm curious, have either of you ever taken supplements? <laughs> Doped? <laughs> uh, I would say that most of the doping that I've done has has been recreational in uh-huh. its context. An actual dope? Um, <laughs> not so much uh, enhanced. I, I'm sort of like the guy. There was a a scene we had in the in the Lance Armstrong film, which actually came from a clip from a Louis Malle film about the Tour de France, where cyclists back in the day, in order to dull the pain, used to think that it was a good idea to drop into a local uh, cafe and actually get a couple of beers that mm-hmm. they would down on the road. A terrible idea if you're looking to enhance your performance, but it did dull their pain, you know. So uh, I, I'm not sure that scientifically I, I, I've achieved anything that's allowed me to to get to that place on the tennis court. But you could court. be Sometimes a mid-century I, cyclist, is what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, about as sophisticated as I get is popping a couple of Advil before uh-huh. I go on the tennis court. Same here. Same here. I actually had a friend who made himself a bit of a, a guinea pig and took some testosterone for a, a book project. And it was it was incredible to see the change and to talk yeah. to him about it. This stuff, it is it is it is very powerful. But but look, I mean, I'll tell you guys, I in high school uh, started taking Ritalin. Mm-hmm. I occasionally still take it. Sure. Um, and when I take it, I feel much more focused, uh, much more productive. So this, you know, this stuff does shake out in our real world. Oh, it, am I gaining an unfair advantage, um, you know, against my fellow podcasters by doing that? I think one of the things we discover, and it's interesting you mentioned Ritalin because uh, my son was briefly on Concerta, and and I recognized traits in him, and so briefly I decided to mm-hmm. get a, get with the program too. Maybe I could really, you know, outperform the other filmmakers in in the business. So. But what I discovered was that there was an upside and a downside, you know, that, yeah. that I had incredible powers of concentration, but I didn't have that peripheral vision that allowed me to free flow with ideas that might be um, wacky sometimes, but also lead me to a place that I never would have thought of, that it was as if I was walking around the world with blinders on, yeah. And, yeah. I, and I never saw what was at the side. I think the big thing that doesn't get told, the big story that doesn't get told that I think we tell a little bit in this documentary is if you were in a profession 
where uh, you just had the slight perception that everybody was was doing something extra to get to get better. You could probably say no for a, a few weeks. You'd probably say no for a while. But eventually, the vast majority of us human beings um, would would seek to level that playing field. Yeah. And and the idea that people who take uh, who, who dope are somehow villains or somehow different than the rest of us is is deeply wrong because it misunderstands the human condition. Um, Anybody who watches this and thinks, oh, I would never dope is fooling themselves because you would. Uh, we've talked about the athletes. We've talked about the organizations a little bit. I'm curious what you guys think about the fans and how they fit into this. Alex, is a, in the algorithm episode, you know, you, you pose a really interesting question that if teams are using data more and more efficiently, do we at some point reach a point where as fans, we're just watching kind of two algorithms go against each other and it's whoever has the best algorithms wins. Do you feel like the fan experience is fundamentally changing? You know, one of the things we like is uh, those moments when athletes exceed even our own expectations and they exceed their own limits. Um, but we keep wanting to push that bar higher and higher and higher and higher. We want somebody not to hit 70. We want somebody at 80 home runs, which is a kind of a natural instinct. But that sends a message to the players, you know, if I'm going to deliver for you, this is how I have to get there. So it's like um, the fans have a role to play in pushing the athletes to want to perform or get to a place where the end justifies the means. But at the same time, I mean, just to state the obvious, the fans also have hold on to this notion of fairness yes, and integrity do. and purity. Yeah, but, uh, you know, it, it, <laughs> it's funny the way that works. You know, if you're a Red Sox fan and somebody raised the issue that B Big Poppy may have doped, do you just say, well, probably not, right? right? But so, but someone on the Yankees, you know, say, oh, he's a cheater. Yeah, yeah, that's right. right. So it's all, it's all a judgment call, sure. Uh, Dan, you want to get in on that? What I guess worries me the most about the future is that bond between can we believe what we just saw? Mm -hmm. You know, can we believe it? There's that whole conversation that's happening just that I think this series seeks to shine a light on. It's like we go to sports because they represent the best part of ourselves and we see ourselves in them. That's and right. when that gets turned into mere a contest between two doctors, when that gets turned into a scientific arms race, um, there's part of that that's intriguing. But there's part of that that is, I, I think, deeply damaging to that bond between um, us as fans and, and, the, and the athletes and the sports that we love. Steroids have been picked out as the uh, whipping boy for fairness, but sport isn't fair. I mean, life isn't fair. To sort of think about the ways in which technology and humanity are going to merge is that we're sort of evolving into two classes of human being, that there'll be enhanced human beings and there will be unenhanced human beings. And that is just about as much science fiction as any of us could handle. Alex Gibney is executive producer and narrator for the new ESPN film series Enhanced, which is available on our new streaming service, ESPN Plus, which you can find in the ESPN app. Dan Coyle is featured throughout the series, and his book is The Talent Code. This episode was produced by Nina Ernest with help from Ryan Nantel, Vin D'Anton, Paul Williard, Aaron Leiden, and Jennifer Thorpe. Special thanks to KBBI in Homer, Alaska. 
My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks for listening. Once again, our new season of original documentaries is coming this fall right in this podcast feed. In the meantime, we'll be back soon with more bonus episodes of 30 for 30 Plus.